Our text comes from the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been here through the holidays and even last week, we were still in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17. Today we're in Matthew chapter 23. This is the New Revised Standard Version. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the graves of the righteous and you say, if we had lived in those days of our ancestors, we would not, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. You testify against yourselves, Jesus says, that you're descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I've desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. This is the word of God. You can be seated. We read only six verses because in staff meeting this week when we read the all of chapter 23, my colleagues asked me, how in the world will you make a nice sermon out of that? What in the world will you do edifying with that? Some of the verses we didn't read in Matthew 23. Woe to you, you build tombs of the prophets, Jesus says. Thus you testify against yourselves that, that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors. Go ahead, fulfill your destiny, you snakes and vipers, you brood of vipers. How can you escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets, sages, scribes, some of whom you killed and crucified. Some you flog in your synagogues and you pursue from town to town so that upon you may come all righteous bloodshed on earth from the blood of the righteous, Abel, all the way to Barchechias. If you say it quick, everyone thinks you'll say it correctly. <laughs> the blood all the way from the beginning till today. All the accumulated blood soaked on this ground, Jesus says. All of that. Truly I tell you, all of this will come upon this generation. You snakes, you brood of vipers. What in the world shall we do with this? Words from Jesus. Maybe it's an appropriate reading for the month of January because I understand this is a real thing now. January's a downer. I've been reading the blogs. My friend, a friend of this community who lives in the Newbold community, Michael Pearson, in a recent blog said, it's actually called January Schmanuary. And it's bad news. All of January is bad news. Michael says this, writing from Newbold College, the first two weeks of the month felt like they had already lasted 65 days. Right, church? January allows us to legitimately moan about everything and say, oh, it's January. We're late to school. Well, it's January. The kids aren't doing their homework. Well, it's January. The kids are sick. Well, it's Jan. The adults are sick. It's January. We're broke. Well, it's Jan. Instead of saying we spent too much for Christmas, we say it's January. January gives us permission to moan and bemoan in this rational way of saying everything has gone wrong because it's January. So maybe the woes are the appropriate reading 
And maybe this is why they had my attention the entire month of January. I don't know. Bad news, the woes. Well, first of all, we're going to ask you to think about this together as a congregation. And we'll do more of this throughout the year, by the way. When you think about the voice of the prophets, living voices of the prophets, for three weeks, this will be our topic. I would like to ask you some questions. Get your phones. Remember, we did this in October or so. We used our phones to register our favorite Bible texts across the congregation. Uh, 150, 160 of us participated, and we found out our favorite Bible text was, do you remember? Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans you have for me. Right? So if you get your phone in hand, and if you cooperate, I'm going to ask you two or three questions about prophets and the voices of prophets and what resonates with you in your lives. There'll be, a, it's easy to join. You're going to go to slido.com. You're going to text hashtag La Sierra. You go to slido.com, hashtag La Sierra, it gets you into this poll, all right? I'm going to give you a minute to get there, and I will read because that tiny font at the top, it's January. <laughs> I'm going to read that small font at the top. How relevant is the idea and experience of prophecy in your daily life? Your choices are somewhat neutral, not extremely, or somewhat. How relevant is the idea and experience of prophecy in your daily life? You have four choices, neutral, extremely, not, somewhat. Please notice you get to decide what the idea and the experience of prophecy is. Doesn't necessarily mean like Benji dressed up like John the Baptist, but maybe it does. All right, about 80, we're getting close to 100 of us have participated. About half of us are in the somewhat category. And we are as neutral as we are extremely and not interested. Isn't it interesting? One of the reasons we do this is because this is what we're sitting among, are your neighbors next to you on the right and the left and the front and the back. This is how varied our idea is on this topic. So far, a little over 100 of us have participated. Can we get that somewhat to 50%? And probably, maybe not. The results are staying about in the same zone, aren't they? 45% of us, of us somewhat interested. 46%, we're not counting votes like what happened somewhere this week in the nation. This is what it's sort of looking like up there. All right, let's go with about half of us are somewhat interested in the idea and the experience of prophecy in our daily lives. Would the other 50% of you like to be excused for potluck? It's interesting. That's question one. About half of us, yeah, we're at 48% now. About half of us say that this is somewhat relevant for our lives. Here's your next question. Same site, same hashtag, and I'm going to read the question to you if you can't see it up at the top here. Slido.com, hashtag La Sierra. This is question number two. There are no longer living prophets, period. That era has closed. There are no more living prophets, Seventh-day Adventist Christians. This era has closed. Now, my child of the church, many of you are here today. What's your answer to this question? 
About 70% of us are saying false, about 20% saying true. The undecided, they kind of, they don't want to commit, they want to be your friends forever. <laughs> there are no more prophets. That era has closed. Next week we're going to talk openly about that when we consider the role of Ellen White in our faith tradition. There are no more prophets. That era has closed. 67% say false. About 20% of us say true. All right, we're going to call, call it on this question and go to question number three. The same place you join at slido.com, the same hashtag, hashtag La Sierra. This one is a little different. We're going to create a word cloud like we did with our favorite Bible passage, and you're going to give a short answer, so don't enter an answer yet. One or two words at the most. When I ask you the question, how do you most often experience prophecy? You could say outside or outdoors. You could say church. You could say scripture. You could say music or art. You could say podcast. You could say one or two words. Give us a short answer. How do you most often experience prophecy? Thank you, crazy preacher. I saw that. See on the bottom, crazy preacher? This is a fascinating word cloud. We'll put this on our, in our social media accounts later. 66 of you, 70. Music, scripture, and Bible. Bible's going to win this one, isn't it? How most often do the people around you experience prophecy? Think about the people we're sitting in community with today. Every one of these answers represents people we're sitting with today. Many of us say Bible and music and the church and reading and prayer and scripture. I'm going to give you some of the other answers here, though, in the smaller font, through friends, through world events, through nature, through religion class, through reflection, through the newscast, through politics, through shared, shared experiences, I think, through nudges, through Sabbath school, through scenery, through world events, through art, through the pride parade, through the news, signs, Star Wars. We may or may not be connected. 150 of you are answering. I'm going to let this one go for a minute. What are the ways you experience prophecy today? Our answers are broad. This is La Sierra. We could ask another community and get different answers. For three weeks, we're going to sit with this, this idea and this question of hearing prophetic voice. Now, some of you are in a Sabbath school class studying Daniel and Revelation, or Daniel, I'm sorry, the book of Daniel. Our adult Sabbath school quarterly is on the topic and the specific prophet named Daniel who lived in a real time in a real place. That conversation, by the way, if you're interested in a particular prophetic voice and the way Seventh-day Adventists have understood it, get to an adult Sabbath school class this quarter. There's at least two who are in the quarterly. Can I give you a paragraph or two from the people who wrote the quarterly? Although Daniel, uh, through Daniel, we have been given sequences of, of events and empires, Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, Rome, and God's eternal kingdom after the second coming. This is the editor's of the Sabbath School Quarterly. From our perspective today, we can see that all worldly kingdoms have come and gone as predicted, except for Rome, still divided nations in Europe as well. 
So we have an affirmation of biblical prophecy as broad and solid as the history of the world that someone living in the time of Babylon or Greece, ancient times, they would not have had. Living where we live today, the people who made the quarterly say this. Living where we are today on the prophetic time scale, we can also see that Daniel was correct about all the kingdoms, that we have even more reasons to trust God regarding what's to come, that God's eternal kingdom after the second coming can be trusted and true. If you would like to talk about that kind of prophecy parallel to these sermons the next three weeks, there are a couple of Sabbath schools who are doing that. If you're interested in Daniel, please get to one of those. And what we do in the sanctuary will not be exactly that. Because while there is some predictive prophecy conversation going on, that's not primarily what I'm interested in these three weeks. These three weeks here are a little different from the pulpit. Not talking about the prophetic role or the prophetic job description in the Old Testament. I'm not talking about certain people who had that responsibility. We're talking about the idea of listening for a prophetic voice. Now often in the Old Testament it came to us from a person who held a role or a job description, but we're asking a broader biblical question, listening for the prophetic voice. What does it sound like? We take Jesus as our anchor point from Matthew 23. This is exactly where we were last week, Matthew 17, the Mount Transfiguration, when the heavens split from the earth and we hear the thundering voice of God, this is my son, listen to him. Do you remember that from last week? This is just a few chapters ago. Peter, James, and John, don't bow down, don't be afraid, get up, listen to him. So here we have Jesus saying something in Matthew 23. There are woes. We want to take that seriously. Let's say a few things about it then. There are woes. They're not a dramatic sadness, really, a woe. It's not simply self-pity, a woe. My father used to, maybe this was an era thing, you tell me. When we would start to pity ourselves growing up, six people in a home, he would take his finger and do this little the world's smallest, smallest violin playing for you. Like, that's comforting. But this isn't self-pity, it's not that. It's not simply dramatic, kind of woeful acting out. Woes are curses. Woes denounce, woes is more like a damnation in biblical material and in ancient material. A woe means precisely that, damn you. And so some Bible translations use that language. If you do a survey of Bible translations, Bible translations, we find other clusters of words. Words like hypocritical and utter misery and you are in for trouble. Woe to you, you are in for trouble. Eugene Peterson in his message paraphrase says, you're hopeless, friends. Isn't it nice he puts friends in there? You're hopeless, oh, it's frauds, not friends. You're hopeless, frauds. Your lives are roadblocks to God's kingdom. This is the nature of a woe and what we're in the middle of now. Hosea, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Revelation, all of these books also have woes, but none have such a cluster, such a condensed segment, especially from the mouth of Jesus, the one we're to listen to. Matthew 23, then, that's, what we're, that's where we'll stay. Now, a woe is not an ordinary insult. 
A woe is uh, highly stylized. Can I say a word about that this morning? When people engage in woes during Jesus' time, and it could be rabbis and scribes and scholars and philosophers and even scientists, when they engage in this art of woes and giving and taking in, in this conversation, it's a verbal skill. Some say it's like a verbal martial art. We have to imagine the woes come at a time when people understood that controversy is not necessarily negative and it's not necessarily hostile. And that is difficult for us today in 2020 to understand. This conversation is not necessarily negative and not necessarily hostile. It's a stylized exchange Jesus engages in. There, will, there are also layers here of Jewish folklore, Jewish storytelling, hero um, um, memorializing to our heroes, folklore. We should also remember that many people have taken this part of the Bible to, to say and do ugly movements to our Jewish sisters, brothers, faith community. This is not an anti-Semitic passage. Woes heavily stylized. They'll be almost like a compliment and then kind of an underhanded thing as you read chapter 23. I invite you this afternoon, sit and read them again together as a family. Second, when we see this word build, you build up tombs or memorials, church. This word build could be used in a literal way, like you're literally building an inscription to someone you cherish and admire, or you're building reputations. You're building a catalog of ideas. You're building things you want to remember, teachings and sayings. A building can be literal or figure, figurative. Three, memorializing the dead is linked to somehow killing the living. And this is where this passage is kind of strange. And it makes us want to go to lunch. What does he mean? By doing this to the ancestors, we're killing living people right in front of us. What does that mean? Well, tombs are not necessarily graves. Again, these could be memorials or inscriptions or a content, a body of information or knowledge. And when we memorialize a body of information or knowledge or a catalog of ideas, Jesus says, we are tipping our hat to that which is dead and maybe not seeing what is right in front of our eyes. You build up dead prophets, you might be killing the living, Jesus says. It's strange logic. Remember, this is the Jesus who's about to be killed. Is Jesus saying then, we shouldn't reverence the prophetic texts because Jesus belongs to a religious tradition where they very much reverence their text, right? As we do, look what came number one, Bible. Is Jesus saying that, we shouldn't reverence the text? I don't think so. Is Jesus saying um, we should ignore that which has come before and favor first? This is not an isolated saying, and that's why for these three weeks I'd like to sit still here. It's difficult, but it's not isolated. It's in at least three different contexts, some of them in Scripture, Luke 11. Read that parallel this afternoon and sometime this week. Also several places outside of Scripture, places we don't usually name here, like the Gospel of Thomas, where Jesus says, you dismiss the living standing before you and you speak of the dead. But keep in mind other testimony we have from Scripture. John chapter 5, a verse we know well, 539, Jesus with the disciples saying, you're searching the Scripture looking for me, but I'm standing right in front of you. 
You're searching the scripture looking for eternal life, but here I am. It is possible you will ignore that is what, that what is living for that which is already passed on. But the theme is in more places, friends, in the New Testament. Jesus encourages us to find living water, doesn't he? To find fresh water. Jesus encourages we find the fresh wineskin and the fresh wine, right? And in Matthew chapter 5, this is that moment where Jesus says, you have heard it said, these old laws, but now in this day in your context, I would like to say a new thing to you. So in fact, Jesus speaks of this often, this idea of what was dead, but something is now living and fresh and alive right in front of you. So we ask today, what are the living prophetic voices you hear? Do you hear living prophetic voices? According to the question earlier, some of us do. We locate them in various places. What are loving prophetic voices from where you sit? Could you identify one, two, three? Do all of the stories have to be weird? This idea of prophecy and what we get in Daniel and Revelation reminds me of our young Amanda at age seven in the back of the sanctuary, just thoroughly consuming Revelation. And when I ask her what it's about, she says, well, it's bad and it gets worse and then it's so beautiful. Yes, but to get to that through the prophetic ideas we normally talk about is a lot of work. It's Bill Hybels, I think, many years ago, who used to tell the story of someone who wanted to work out their unusual prophetic ideas, and there's no shortage of them in the world. So he would say to the pastor, I use the strangest thing happened. I, waked up at, I wake up at 2.01 in the morning. I, it's like, Samuel, I hear the voice of God. What, what? And I, I can't figure it out, so I go back to sleep. And then I wake up at 3.01 in the morning. Look at the clock, it's 3.01. Oh, it was just 2.01. Oh, that must be God. But I can't figure anything out, so I go back to sleep. And I wake up, it's, Bill Heibel says, don't tell me, it's 4.01. And then it's 5.01. And Yes, pastor, what does it mean? It means that you wake up a lot. Does, do all of our prophecy experiences have to be odd and weird and off? Is there something piercing right in front of your eyes today? Do you hear it and see it now? What are living prophetic voices? Notice I did not say, who are the prophets? Name them, are they all wrapped up and contained in certain people? What are the voices that we hear? In our era of coaching, and advising and directing. Listen, if you want a book on prophecy, can I give you some titles? Ask your search engine. There is no shortage, so apparently contemporary culture is very aware of this topic. Here are some options. The Power of Prophetic Teams, pastors. I didn't know that was a book. Dreams in the 21st Century. Prophetic Transformation. Freedom Through the Voice of God. Activating a Prophetic Lifestyle. Increasing Your Prophetic Gift. Pure Prophetic Flow. Each of these are different book titles you could buy right now from where you're sitting. Engaging the Spiritual Reality. Increase Your Anointing. And lots of book titles that involve the secret plans. The Strange. 
culture is very aware and awake to the idea of prophetic voices. I would like to know about us. What are we hearing? What are you hearing? Matthew 23, 34, Jesus says, I send you prophets, sages, scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and you will flog them in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. I send voices into your lives right now. Prophecy is not out there somewhere. Prophecy is up close and personal, friends. Prophecy is about our lives right now. If we feel detached from the idea of prophecy in our daily living, maybe we've not yet understood the role of these prophetic voices. Prophecy is not out there. It's up here, close and personal. It's not bound up in leather, sandwiched between the Bible or books in the library. It's not bound up in a person, a role, an office, somewhere in the pages of the Old Testament. Prophecy, it simply communicates the heart of God. That's all it is. Where have you heard a prophetic voice this week? Where have you heard the heart of God communicated this week? A fresh, pulsing, the heartbeat, the reality of God, the dreams of God, the imagination of God, the unending compassion of God, that's what prophetic voices sound like. The work of a prophet, it won't be picked up by Associated Press or any other news outlet you read or I read. It won't make it on a podcast. It won't, because they're not sensational headlines. They're not predictions about events and times that are to come. Prophecy is always communicating the heart of God. A a prophet communicates the affections of God, not information. It's the heart of God on display. And God is consistent, not necessarily predictable. That's the voice of prophecy, the voices of prophetic voices that we're listening for these weeks, church. Can living voices speak to issues the Bible has not or does not seem to address? Think about it for a moment, what issues are in our world that it feels like the Bible doesn't address? Not everything we experience in our everyday life. Does Jesus have a word? Can you think of one or two? Nuclear weapons? Biogenetic crazy crazy? Our sister campus at Walla Walla University with uh, some kind of a um, cyber attack and hack that's kept their campus in lockdown for weeks? What kind of issues do we live with today that it feels like the Bible might not address because when Jesus says, love your neighbor, was he in my neighborhood last week? My neighborhood, which is supposed to be quiet and safe, my neighborhood, just, you know, 10 minutes from Loma Linda, my neighborhood where the sheriff uh, helicopters were up above and it looked like every sheriff patrol was down the street and we were all evacuated from the neighborhood and the, the battering ram, whatever you call those large machines, and everyone was hunkered down for hours around an apartment complex. Love that neighborhood. What are the issues we live with today that it feels like the Bible might not address, church? And where are the living prophetic voices that speak to issues? I simply want to give you a short list I'm working on. Please hear me now. I'm not saying this has to be your list. 
I'm not saying this has to be the church's list or the Seventh-day Adventist denominational list. I simply want to tell you where I feel prophetic prompting these last days and weeks. I want to show you what, when it happens to me, this is how it happens. Early this week, there was a 75-year anniversary, the celebration of the release, the liberation of Auschwitz, the Red Army's liberation of Auschwitz in Poland. If you picked up any of the news article, you know there was a small crowd that gathered and the storytellers are now recognizing that those who lived through that experience are aging and old. How many of them can make the trip to Poland? How many of them want to make the trip? But this week, the voices from Auschwitz at this 75 anniversary, I want to read to you. In a place that was used to slaughter and eradicate Jewish people, grown-up little boys and girls gathered. This is about 15 square acres. Maybe 1.3 million people, they estimate, died here, 90% of them Jews. One of the voices was Elsa. She no longer has her eyesight, so she passed her, her note to someone else to read for her. Another woman, Mrs. Dagan, 95 years old, while she was talking, she broke from her speech to ask for a glass of water, something she wouldn't have been allowed as a little girl, a prisoner in this camp. She had some anger, they say. Her anger wasn't at the German architects of this awful program. Her anger was at the world. She said, where was the world when I was a little girl? Where was the world? The world could see at everything that was happening, and the world did nothing to save thousands. And she was interrupted with applause. There was a man, Mr. Tursky, 93, who spoke of many of, for, on behalf of many fellow survivors. And he issued, they say, what sounded like a final warning to the human race. Soon, he says, we will lack a first-hand testimony of what happened in these spaces. We will not be here. And I want you to know, he said, Auschwitz did not fall from the sky. It was destined. There were thousands and thousands of smaller steps, each one stripping a single minority of its dignity and humanity. After this Holocaust, Tursky says, the 11th commandment is, thou shalt not be indifferent. I hear these witnesses and I get a prophetic prompting. This is what happens to me. Here's another one. This guy happens to be a favorite of mine, a Seventh-day Adventist pastor educated at Oakwood University. I've been listening to Barry Black's prayers for years. He pastors the senators, by the way. He's had a rough week or two. The 62nd chaplain of the United States Senate, educated at Oakwood University, a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, standing in a space, and all he needs to do every morning is say an opening prayer. Read Barry Black's prayers, and I get a prophetic prompting. Here's another one, Pastor Dave, when I last flew home from your country, from Sydney. There was a documentary on Adam Goods, the football player from the Sydney Swans. Do I have it correct? Somehow it's an awful lot easier to watch stories from someone else's culture than mine. And I was really trying to sleep, and I thought, this story won't interest me because I don't really care about football. 
I'll fall asleep. And then came the story that you know very well, and many of you also. 2014, he's Australia's person of the year. But he now no longer plays football because of the controversy, so much of it public and ugly and violent as an indigenous athlete raising awareness about his own people in the process of all of this and him resigning from playing football and all of the awards and accolades and attention it brought his team and his nation. He learns that his mother is one from the stolen generation. He didn't know this story. He didn't know his own mother Indigenous Aboriginal was one of the small children taken out of homes and put away, hoping that we would somehow rearrange the race and clean things up. He doesn't play football anymore. He's become a little bit of a public voice for Aboriginal people. And I listen to his story, friends, and I feel this prophetic prompting, how can I be sitting on a plane weeping over a culture that's not mine? Or in August, when we stood at the Mendenhall Glacier, which was very important to my husband. His parents spent some time living in Alaska, not far from this glacier in, in Juneau. So we get out of public transportation on a Sabbath morning from the cruise ship to the bus to they drop you off. It feels like 10 miles from the glacier, so you keep walking. Looks like we walked by an Adventist church just along the highway, just around the block. There was a Seventh-day Adventist church, but this was our destination because for his parents, this was a precious location. But I don't need to go into the visitor center and I don't need to look at anybody else's pictures. I can see what I can see. And I can remember as a child, my parents taking us to this space and other glacier lands in Canada and the northern states. I can see what I can see, that what, what God's creation looks like. I know the whole earth is full of God's glory. And I can see the shifting changes. And I don't know why this one is so difficult for Christians who read the Bible and know the Creator created it all. And the Creator is coming back here for it all. This is the earth that will be made new. Church, it's this earth. Looking through old sermons, I see a sermon I preached in 2009 at the request of the university for a big weekend that they were having, a conference. The title of the sermon, It's Not Easy Being Green. But that was 2009, and we could talk about it then, and today we seem to not be able to. And I stand in front of the Mendenhall Glacier and I get a prophetic prompting about how I'm walking in God's earth. I feel it. Or I walk over to the State Museum in Juneau and I take in all the stories of indigenous peoples, dozens of languages and cultures and religions and economies of people conquered by the Russian flag for almost as much time as they've been claimed by the United States of America. And I listen to their cry of what happened to their people and I get a prophetic prompting, a fresh prophetic prompting Jesus told us that the end goal, the aim of all of this, when the prophets cry out, it's because God has something in mind. Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones them. How often I've what? I've longed to gather your children together. I just want to gather creation together. 
a brood under my wings, and you are not willing. Jesus told us to listen for that voice because the goal, the end end result of these prophetic voices prompting me will be so that God can truly gather all God created. The reconciling work of God. This is what I'd love to consider for the next three weeks. Is there a theme to the prophetic voice in 2020? I get a sense that it's the reconciling work of God. I get a sense that peoples and families and races and nations and communities need the reconciling work of God more than anything else. So I know we need to close. This week I got a prophetic prompting. My last one I can share. I was in San Diego for three days with beautiful colleagues These are pastors from our churches around North America, our campus churches. There's about 14 of us, these Adventist College campuses and the lead pastors come together once a year and we sit and we share and we listen. And there are people in the room you would recognize and you watch Dwight and Randy all the time, I already know. Randy loves to tell those stories, and I, we did, they're just great stories of the people who ride in, and first they watch Dwight, and you start in the time zone on the East Coast, and you move towards California, and some of us in our rocking chairs can take in all of these voices on a Sabbath. They're great voices, good colleagues, friends, and we share our stories, and the Bible is open, and the Spirit is alive, and there's God talk, and it's deep, and it's rich, and it's broad, and there's shallow talk like but does the university mow your lawn or do you have to take care of it yourself? We compare all the details. It's a glorious two or three days comparing notes and getting a reading list and being enriched and and, 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 and understanding campus communities. We carry different burdens. We're not crazy. The, The two days were about over. We went to lunch in Old Town. Old Town, San Diego. So we're sitting in, of course, Mexican restaurant. There are two little ones who've been with us most of the week, Abby and Eden, and I think they're about six years old. Abby happens to live with her family at Union College, and Eden lives with her family at Walla Walla. And these two girls struck up a friendship, and they play, and they chatter, and they color, and they run, and they giggle. And we came to a moment around the table where Abby's balloon that was on her wrist fell off, and the balloon began to float. Would have been easier if the balloon floated away, but it, flo- it, 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 it made its way to the patio heater, and the balloon exploded. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, how long shall it take? And the whale came. And the whale was piercing and the sputtering tears and everyone stopped in the restaurant and a few adults looked at Abby and went, oh, and we chuckled and we, yeah, we know, a balloon, aw. And you know, after a big whale like that, what comes next? 1,001, 1,002, she catches her breath and here comes whale number two, who fills up the whole restaurant. Now I'm watching this, there's two little girls at the table Eden gets up from her side of the table, comes around to Abby, takes her balloon off of her wrist, hands it to Abby. I'm gonna show you a picture. You can't see Abby is collapsed into her mommy and Eden is on looking. 
And Eden is taking the whole thing in, and Abby is calming down, and all of the parents, oh. 1001, 1002, 1003. The whale this time comes from Eden. <laughs> and the waterworks and the whale, and it's deep and rich, and the adults look again and they go, oh. Poor thing, she realized the consequences of sharing. That's tough. It's real. Aw. It's okay, Eden, you did a compassionate thing, all the adults start saying. But Eden's father says, my friend Andreas Bukai, oh no. Oh no, those tears are not because she's sad she lost her balloon. Those tears are empathy tears. Eden understands that Abby's pain is real. And there's no giving her one purple balloon that will solve this problem. And all she can do is stand in the space and watch her friend hold her balloon and wail that they had to go through this. It was almost five minutes before Eden calmed down. Not because she's missing a balloon, but because life really feels like this. And the prophetic prompting. Their daddies are bright, but it was their daughters that got me. The voice of the prophet will always be to call us towards the reconciling love of God. Amen and amen. Amen.